The reading of the scriptures from Genesis chapter 2, reading verses 18 to 25. Uh, I invite your reverent attention to the public reading and also your hearing in faith. Uh, the reading of God's word again from Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. But for the man there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib which the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As uh, all of you are aware, the Bible uh, continually affirms uh, the great love of God in providing for His people, uh, continually in His uh, sovereign grace, meeting uh, their needs, both uh, spiritually and materially. Uh, and that is essentially uh, the case that is before us this morning, a uh, great work of God uh, providing uh, for His people. Uh, as you know, the context, man is alone in the garden sanctuary, and God acts to complete him and to help him with a bride. Uh, first uh, part of the uh, paragraph is uh, God acknowledges that Adam is incomplete. Good application there. He knows that uh, all of us are incomplete. And ultimately, uh, our completeness is found in our great and only Redeemer, who is Christ. Uh, the text begins, as is uh, found most often in uh, uh, Genesis chapter 1, and God said, uh, in our case, uh, the Lord God said, and then the content of what he says follows, it's instructive that if we understand uh, the creative Word of God over and over again in Genesis chapter 1, used seven times, and God said, and God simply creates by divine fiat with His Word, the power of God in His Word. It's also very instructive uh, contextually, after every event of His creation, God says, and it was good. And then finally, when He's finished, He says that one is very good. But now in regards to Adam, He says, it is not good. And so God's going to act again in His great creative uh, power. Uh, it's not good that, that Adam is alone. Uh, it's very interesting that uh, in the Hebrew text, these words are 
uh, fused together, not good, uh, just simply fused together as a reminder of, of Adam's uh, condition. I think part of that condition comes from the cultural mandate, Genesis uh, chapter 1, the overwhelming responsibility that he has to uh, fill the earth with the glory of God, expanding the divine presence. How can he do that if he's alone? Uh, He is uh, to exercise dominion over the entire created order as God's vice regent. Imagine the immensity of that task. Uh, well, God knows the immensity of it, and so he's about to act again uh, to uh, bring Adam uh, his great, uh, great provision. Furthermore, God uh, presses upon Adam the duty of serving him and protecting the garden sanctuary. In and of itself, an awesome responsibility. Let's, let's look at that very quickly in chapter 2, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. We looked at those two words last week, uh, used of the priests in the Old Testament, that they were to protect the sanctuary. So Adam really has an awesome responsibility with all of these duties from the cultural mandate and to protect the sanctuary where God meets with him in the garden. And so God declares that he will uh, make a helper to complement Adam. The text, I will make a helper suitable for him. Uh, The word helper, interestingly enough, is oftentimes in the Scriptures uh, used of God. Uh, Turn very quickly with me, if you would, one such occasion, uh, Exodus uh, chapter 18, And verse 4, this very word helper is used there, but more critically, it's used of God. Great reminder to us because God, as he was a helper to Adam, is also a helper helper to us. Uh, Exodus 18.4. The other was named Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. In and of itself, that verse captures the magnificence of God who is a helper to his people. The name Eliezer comes from that word, that God is a helper. And for all of us, God is our helper. From ages past to this very day, uh, he helps his people. Because uh, God is uh, the great lover of the souls of his people and the great provider of their spiritual and material needs. So while God, in his sovereignty, knows that Adam has this great need, he's going to establish the condition for Adam to recognize it. So God brings the animals and birds before Adam. It's very interesting, uh, the, uh, the verb to bring uh, is in a causative stem in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, to me, it just reminds me of the majesty of the sovereignty of God. Imagine corralling all of the animal kingdom and bringing them before Adam. The purpose is uh, he wants Adam to name them uh, because Adam is his vice regent and he is their Lord. And God has given Adam dominion over them 
and now he's going to exercise it in naming them. And obviously they come male and female. That's implicit in the text that Adam knew the cultural mandate to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth. So he was to expand the divine presence with children. Obviously unable to do that in his present condition. Stop just a moment to make what I think is very telling application to our own culture today. Uh, The alternative lifestyle movement is really a competition to the cultural mandate. Ironically, they can't fulfill it. And so they go to recruit younger and younger children. What an incredible mandate of evil in contrast to Adam's cultural mandate to fill the earth with the glory of God. It's a great reminder to us uh, of of the depravity uh, in many sectors of our culture. In co-opting God's mandate, they create a condition that spiritually returns men and women and boys and girls uh, to the terrible reality of Genesis 1.1. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. They're leading people in a uh, reverse mandate uh, into spiritual darkness. But again, it's our reminder that God is the lover of His people. He's a giver to His people. Uh, to represent His glory. And in this process of naming the animals, uh, it's not a helper found to complete Adam because uh, if you look at verse 20, uh, uh, the animals are not suitable for, for Adam. They're not sufficient. Again, these two, in the Hebrew Bible, these two words are fused together, I think, to intensify the insufficiency of, of Adam's condition, not found. Uh, there was not a helper found for Adam. God, of course, knew that. Now Adam knows it. More importantly, grace is going to remedy it. So really a powerful reminder that grace is going to remedy Adam's condition. And so God acts to complete Adam, verses 21 to 25. A deep sleep falls upon Adam. Again, this is also in the causative stem in the Hebrew Bible. God causes a deep sleep to fall upon him. That's where it is used in uh, the Abrahamic covenant of uh, Genesis chapter 15. A deep sleep falls upon Abraham. And God becomes a sole actor in sovereign grace and fulfilling the covenant. He's going to make it happen by His sovereign grace. Beautiful picture of God's grace to His people. So here God is, uh, use a medical metaphor, is uh, the anesthesiologist and the surgeon. He takes a rib from Adam's side, closes the incision, and fashions it into a woman. Uh, the verb is literally he, he built her. Uh, the majestic beauty of God, the architect of all of life, builds a bride for Adam. And, again, using the cause of to stand, he, 
he brings her to Adam. That verbal stem conveys the idea to me that it's a gift to Adam to help him personally and corporately and culturally in his service to God. Now, we know Adam is complete. Reminds you in terms of the Gospel, the natural man is totally incomplete. Regardless of the things and cultural ideas that he fashioned, he will forever be incomplete. Turning to myth and various asundry things to fill that incompleteness, but he will always remain, remain apart from Jesus Christ incomplete. Uh, God makes the soul complete in His grace. Adam erupts in a love poem, expressing his pleasure uh, and his satisfaction. Verse 23. And the man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall become woman because she was taken out of man. A love poem. Adam responding to the grace of God. I don't know if you've ever tried to write poetry. I assume some of you have. But one of the difficulties of poetry is compressing the reality of language and the discipline that it takes to do that. To create rhymes, if you will, in the Hebrew thought rhymes. It's a challenge, difficult thing to do. Oh, just let's just write prose. No, Adam, Adam responds in a love poem, expressing uh, his pleasure of what God has done. Reminder to uh, husbands to express the pleasure of the gift of a bride, be thankful, and, and likewise the bride, husband, uh, but take pleasure and satisfaction in all of God's provision, whatever our station in life, because God is always good, preeminently good to his people uh, as the lover of their souls and in providing for them. Uh, and he, he names her. He names Eve in, in relationship to him. Uh, the Hebrew word for uh, man is ish. For woman is isha. The vowel at the end uh, is the feminine form of ish. His relationship to his wife. Uh, also a very countercultural idea uh, to many who attempt to change how God has made them. Uh, thereby violating God's goodness. Uh, but in Ish and Isha, they are equal partners. Uh, and Moses appends this uh, as the institution of marriage in verse 24. For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. A man's undivided loyalty is transferred to his wife in solidarity with her. He is to cleave tightly to her as a divine provision and to her alone, speaking to permanency and monogamy. And the one flesh is their, their intimate union. It's very interesting that this uh, language of... Uh, of covenantal union and marriage is used throughout the Old Testament of God's relationship with Israel. Not only in loyalty, but also in disloyalty. 
because they played the harlot. It's a reminder to us uh, that if God is the great giver and the great lover of our souls, we are to return a measure of that loyalty to Him as the only God. None but Him. Forsaking all others but Him. Jesus, as you know, cites uh, Moses to affirm the permanence. Turn it very quickly with me, if you would, to uh, Matthew, uh, Matthew uh, chapter 19. In verses 5 and 6. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother, shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no more two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. So Jesus is acknowledging that the divine intent in marriage is still in force. Is a divine institution to fill the earth with the glory of God, to expand the boundaries uh, of His presence in the cultural mandate. In our culture, there's almost, not entirely of course, a wholesale rejection of this uh, and the implied uh, vows that go with it from Moses as well as ratification uh, by Christ our only and great Redeemer. Resulting in what? Genesis 1.1. Chaos and confusion. The disintegration of many families. It's a reminder that God has a word. It's His word. And when it is rejected or trifled with, we get Genesis 1.1. A society without form and void and dark to an obvious uh, violation of the cultural mandate. It's vital to grasp that Jesus uh, cites the institution of marriage before the fall in Genesis 3. In and of itself, highlighting uh, its importance. It's the ideal. It remains the ideal today. Uh, this, uh, this event is... Uh, in the act of creation uh, throughout Genesis 1 and 2, and uh, even in Genesis 2, uh, when God completed the creation, He rests. Uh, both of those are eschatological events. God creates a new creation in His church. And when we come to Christ, we rest in Him spiritually. And we will rest in Him throughout all eternity. But spiritually in Christ, we rest in Him. We no longer work for our salvation. We rest in His work alone as sufficient and efficient for our spiritual provision. And so marriage is also a model of the church that pretends a great eschatological event. Uh, the Apostle Paul, for example, in Ephesians 5, uh, repairs uh, to the uh, institution of marriage uh, and speaks to both husbands and wives uh, to love and to be loyal to one another. 
speaks to the duties of the marriage union. Uh, then he, in, in Ephesians chapter 5, and verse 31, he quotes Genesis 2.24. just want to read it to you to just press the significance of it. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and His church. So marriage is also an eschatological reality of God's relationship now and forever with His people in the church. It's, it's, it's a love that mirrors... Christ's love for His church. Thus, marriage is a type of union between Christ and His church throughout the Testaments. And the home mirrors that. That's why we should approach it with dignity and reverence and the fear of the Lord. Because of what it pretends and of the relationship of Christ to His people. The church is the end time Israel and in response is to be loyal uh, to the head of the church as reflected in the loyalty of a husband to his wife. That our churches be loyal to Christ because Christ is the head of the church. And looking forward, eschatologically, uh, marriage is also a type uh, of consummation at the second coming. Let's turn very quickly to the prophet uh, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 62. And I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 62 uh, in verses 4 and 5. No longer be said of you forsaken, nor to your land will it any longer be said desolate, but you will be called my delight is in her and your land married. Notice the marriage imagery there. The union. The loyalty. For the Lord delights in you and to Him your land will be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. The context here of Isaiah is the change of status captured by the renaming of Jerusalem to Beulah or married. The change is also the love of God for His sons and daughters. Thus the once great city, once poor and forsaken in the Babylonian invasion, is now married and will have many sons. And God will have affection and delight uh, in His bride and in the sons. Beautiful picture. Eschatological reality. Let's look at that from the book of the Revelation. Uh, Revelation chapter 19, uh, verses 7 and 8.
Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. The groom comes for His bride and His bride is ready. His bride is His people, the church. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen of the righteous acts of the saints. Thus Christ comes for us in an ultimate deliverance where we will celebrate with Him in the marriage supper of the Lamb, a world without end. Also another beautiful picture of this in Revelation 21, verses 1 and 2. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Presumption of the restored city with all of her citizens. So the process begun in Genesis chapter 2 in the creation of Eve. And the institution of marriage foreshadows Christ and His church fulfilled in even a more beautiful and greater reality in the second coming where Christ comes for His bride to rescue her. And again, it's Christ as the great lover and the great giver to His people that should evoke the corresponding reality of our loyalty and love for Him because of His loyalty and love for us. Very interesting that, um, as I've mentioned a couple of times previously, uh, the kingdom of the world always have counterfeits. There's a counterfeit cultural mandate that's very perverse and wicked. There's also a counterfeit bride as a warning to us to be careful because we have loyalty to one Savior, the head of the church. Let's look at that very quickly just because I want to remind you of the counterfeit because it's everywhere in our culture today. Revelation 18 and verse 3. It's a reference to spiritual Babylon. It's a counterfeit to the church. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. And then later on in the text, it's woe, woe is Babylon, for Babylon has fallen. She appears in what apparently is a very beautiful form. She attracts many. She seduces them. And she leads them to ruin. Because she falls. It's a reminder to us that we are the bride of Christ. We're not to fall. We're to remain true and faithful. That we hold fast in our hearts. That He is the great lover of our souls. And the great giver to us of everything that we need. And that he does not fall. And that he will remain faithful and sure and true to his people. All of us have gone to weddings. Very beautiful experiences to me. Um, sometimes they're very traditional weddings. There are vows that are read. 
that speak of permanence and union, that reference the eschatological reality of uh, Christ and his church. A reminder, we're married to Christ. And a reminder that in our sojourn in this world, we will face uh, many competing choices. We're to turn away from them. Uh, we're to wait for him to come for us eschatologically. And in the interim time, to be faithful and sure and true. Because we are his people. And we know that he has loved us and withheld nothing from us. And that though we have many, many needs, he will fulfill them all in his own time, in his own way, and certainly and dramatically and really and certainly when he comes from heaven to take us as his bride and to feast with us in the great marriage supper of the Lamb. So God loves Adam, provides him a gift. God loves his bride and gifts us with a great Savior. Correspondingly, we should be loyal to him. And we have a great expression of that uh, this day, which uh, we traditionally uh, partake of the Lord's table. Uh, namely, to uh, think of the loyalty of Christ and all that it cost him. You know that one of the backdrops of uh, the Eucharist, the time of thanksgiving in the Lord's table, is the Passover lamb. The lamb was slain. The portals of the door were marked with blood so the angel of death would pass over. Our lamb was slain. Uh, that our lives are marked with his blood. That the angel of death gives us a wide berth. Cannot touch us or get at us because the blood of Christ protects us. Uh, but it speaks to the extremity of his loyalty for us. He, he not only gives us great words, great encouraging words, he gives us himself in life and in death. Uh, the uh, institution of it is found uh, in many places in the New Testament. I'm going to read from uh, Mark chapter 14. Uh, in verses 22 to 25. And while they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it. This is my body. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is to be shed on behalf of many. The extreme loyalty of Christ to his bride. A loyalty that purchases us for his kingdom and that we should hold profoundly dear in the return of loyalty to him and our service and love for him. As you know, uh, the Lord's table is... Um, open to all who confess Christ and have been baptized and who are not living uh, under church discipline or living in some known sin for which they refuse to repent. Uh, it's for, for God people. As I share with you often, it is uh, not the table of Grace Bible Church, it's the table of the Lord. So if you're here this morning as a guest and know Christ as your Savior and you love and adore Him, the table is open to you. 
The Belgic Confession of Faith, Article 35, reads, for the support of the spiritual and heavenly life which believers have, He has sent them a living bread which came down from heaven, namely Jesus Christ, who nourishes and sustains the spiritual life of the believers. When He's eaten by them, that is spiritually appropriated and received by faith. It's an act of faith. An acknowledgement that we are taking the benefits of our union with Christ by faith. There is no significance at all in the mere corporal act of eating and drinking. It's a measure that we are appending to it faith and trusting all of the benefits that accrue to us out of His loyalty to us and giving to us His own body and blood. As the bread is broken and served to you, I invite you to engage uh, the Lord uh, in thanksgiving. Sometimes the Lord's uh, table is referred to as the Eucharist. The word is thanksgiving. We should be, of all people, profoundly thankful for the greatest gift of all time and the forgiveness of sin and guilt. It's a treasure. And we should respond in thanksgiving in the Eucharist, hearts full of thanksgiving. We should celebrate the grace that God has given to us in whatever situation in life in which you are found. Uh, if you know the Savior, uh, He has made you spiritually complete and provides for you uh, to wait for His eternal consummation. We should celebrate that. Uh, the world has many, many countless celebrations. This is ours. We should esteem it and hold it close and respond accordingly. Please hold the bread until all are served so that we may manifest our unity and uh, partake together.